Hello and welcome to the Investment Week podcast for April, where we analyse the biggest investment news stories and speak to leading investors about the most important issues on their minds. I'm your host, Laura Jew. I'm the Deputy News Editor of Investment Week. Investment Week has been the premier publication serving professional investors in the UK since 1995. You can find out more about us by visiting our website at www.investmentweek.co.uk. In this episode of the podcast, we will be talking about key concerns for boutique asset managers. With me in the studio today to discuss this is Richard Romer-Lee, Managing Director at Square Mile Investment Consulting and Research. Thanks for joining me, Richard. So, boutique firms have been in the spotlight lately as a number of reports have highlighted the difficulties they face due to their smaller size. What would you identify as the key concerns for boutique companies in the current environment? Hi, Laura, and thank you for having me along today. Um, There are difficulties that apply across fund management, which we see at the moment, which apply to boutiques but bigger companies too. So I'll just highlight some of those and then we can dig into the boutique question. And I think there are four things I'll highlight. The first is it's incredibly competitive in the market. There are lots and lots of asset managers, fund managers. There are thousands of funds being marketed to investors. And so that competitive pressure Mm -hmm. is everywhere and is is really difficult and in a world where there's increased scrutiny on investment funds and how people's performance is and whether or not they're delivering the outcomes investors expect everybody is feeling the pressure of that scrutiny that's the first thing the second thing which is much talked about is the regulatory pressure the regulator is casting its eye very closely on the asset management industry at the moment with the asset manager market review that's being undertaken They're looking at a number of issues there, but they essentially want to see effective competition and innovation, as well as making sure conflicts of interest are being managed properly and that value for money is being delivered to investors. So that applies again across the industry, but the regulatory pressure and the regulatory red tape Mm -hmm. that ensues, which is a cost of doing business, and we all have to accept that, puts pressure on businesses. Obviously, larger businesses have the benefits of scale, whereas smaller businesses Uh, will have to pay a proportionately more more amount. I think there's an increasingly complex distribution landscape too, and this applies globally, but let's just talk about the UK. Lots and lots of different types of firms looking for support and supply from asset management businesses, Mm -hmm. whether they're whether they're large institutions, whether they're insurance companies, whether they're discretionary fund managers, whether they're wealth managers, financial advisors of all shapes and sizes, insurance companies, platforms. And we think that the service that each of these types of businesses want, mm-hmm. the service requirements they want from fund managers and asset management companies is going up and they're all, they all want different things at service levels and pricing and so on. So that's going to be pretty hard for the industry mm-hmm. as a whole and I think they'll have to invest more in distribution and client service and of course that's even harder for boutique fund managers who, yeah. who have smaller businesses. And then finally, I think pricing pressure is is rife across the industry as well. And we've seen that particularly in passive funds where the big companies thrive. It's about piling it high and having good products and and, and selling them cheap. Um, But pricing pressure will continue in the active fund management space as the clients of fund managers seek to drive more margin for them and and their customers. Mm -hmm. But against all of that, if you're good, if you're good at investment management, if you deliver the outcomes that your customers expect mm-hmm. and you provide a good service, boutiques have as good a chance of succeeding as anybody else. And if you go back 20, 25 years to look at what, what is now Stuart Investors, mm-hmm. but the, the first state team that invested in Asia and emerging markets started off as a boutique 
um, ended up with 60, 70, 80 billion under management. Mm -hmm. Now, is that still a boutique? I think it is. It's a specialist fund manager that concentrates in one, uh, one area mm -hmm. that's been very successful. Or Matthews Asia, another Asian face Asian-facing boutique that's got, what, $30, $40 billion under management mm -hmm. to some of the newer names. So the newer names might be the most obvious, obviously, being Woodford Investment Management or Fulcrum. These are newer businesses that are very good at what they do, and they're attracting lots of assets very quickly. Okay. Um, you mentioned regulatory change is one of the key costs that are piling up for boutique managers. What sort of costs are they facing that maybe weren't there before? Yeah, I, th I think the cost of doing business is growing. The cost of being in business is growing. We're a small business, and I know this isn't about us, but we're a small business, and the regulatory red tape and the regulatory structure um, that we have to put in place uh, is far more onerous than was the case many years ago. But it's a cost of doing business. We accept that, and I know the asset management companies accept that too. Specifically, the compliance function, mm -hmm. that's important. Um, the transparency that is required from all of us, the disclosures, the disclaiming, sorry, the disclosures, the explanation of what we're doing, the transparency, the reporting, and so on. That, 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 that obviously costs money to do. So how are these costs likely to impact remuneration within these firms? Could this create problems around talent retention? The cost of doing business is increasing, um, so, so there, there, there is margin pressure on asset managers. Mm -hmm. So the pricing pressure at the top level um, will, will affect how much money they accumulate, and markets going sideways don't help, so how much money they earn off their strategies. And also the cost of doing business is rising, so we've already talked about the increasing complexity of distribution, mm -hmm. the increasing regulatory burden. So asset management has actually been a... a, a a profitable industry to be on. Mm -hmm. So shareholders, the, the, the returns on equity on average are greater than other parts of the financial services mm -hmm. industry. So it's been a good place to be, but it's inevitable that this the, the, the margin pressure will lead to a squeeze in remuneration. Um, I think that actually you already see businesses f concentrating on the talent that really adds value. So mm -hmm. that's fund managers that deliver the returns that advisors and investors expect. And it's really good, talented service people, as well as all the talented management and operational people too. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it's inevitable that there will be pressure on remuneration. And that will be difficult for businesses because I suppose lots of staff have expected a certain level of remuneration, mm -hmm. which may not be repeatable in the future. And that may be, that, that may be um, they may have to be more discerning. Okay, so how can smaller managers cope with the latest plans to unbundle research and trading costs that are coming in under MIFID 2? That's really interesting. Under MIFID 2, mm -hmm. which is all about increasing transparency, making sure there's value for money and so on, mm -hmm. um, fund managers are obliged to make sure that there isn't a conflict of interest between using dealing commissions to pay for research. Mm -hmm. So they have a choice. They can either pay for the research separately, yeah. and Woodford has shown the way there. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's, so there's an example of a boutique that's saying, we're going to pay for research outside of the fund. We'll take it on our own P&L. Mm -hmm. And before them, Bailey Gifford and Elgin are two other companies that have said that they're, they're going to do that. Um, or alternatively, companies, as I understand it, can set a budget Okay. Mm -hmm. But they have to publish that budget and they have to explain how they've spent it. But either way, investors will be able to see either you know, if they have paid for research, where it's gone, how mm -hmm. much it's cost. And if they haven't, of course, it'll, it, it'll, be, on, it'll, it'll be on the company's P&L. Um, what do you think that the regulator could do to lessen the burden that these smaller fund management businesses face? I think it's very difficult for the regulator to lessen the burden. The regulator is hell-bent on making sure that the financial services industry 
and our part of the financial services industry puts the best interests of the customers first. We live in a in a, in a, in a country and, a, and increasingly in a world and a society where individuals have to look after their own after their own financial affairs, <laughs> and so that's the companies won't pay for, for long term savings anymore or beyond what they can get away, away with. The government mm-hmm. will support people at a subsistence level, but yep. not above. So the burden of saving mm-hmm. has been transferred onto individuals, and the risk associated with it getting not not working is also being passed to individuals. So the regulators absolutely hell-bent on creating or, or making sure the industry puts the best interest of customers first, that so everybody's going to be caught up in that. But as I said earlier, it's possible to structure businesses to be compliant. In fact, you can outsource quite a lot of the advice and, and the processes mm-hmm. there um, and then build a business that thrives. So there's not much that smaller businesses can do to, to get away from this. It's mm-hmm. a fact of life and it's a part of doing business. But I think culturally... Um, one can embrace the spirit of mm-hmm. the regulation, and actually, that's a large part of it. And if you, if the business is pointed towards doing the right thing by clients, and the vast majority of businesses in our in our industry are anyway, mm-hmm. then the cost of compliance is one that you bear. But actually, it's not it's not an overly onerous burden. And lastly, what is it about um, boutiques that makes them a, co- a compelling investment for fund selectors? Is there anything that's particularly attractive about them over a larger firm? Some boutiques offer really good investment strategies and typically they might be founded by smart investors who for whatever reason no longer to want to work in bigger organizations mm-hmm. and we've mentioned Woodford we can mention Crux we can mention all sorts of different businesses but those are two more, more recent ones where where investors have come out of bigger businesses and for what for a variety of reasons wanted to set up their, their, their own business so fund selectors like them because they've got talent mm-hmm. uh, they like them because the the managers and the businesses are focused on those strategies. There's nowhere to hide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and very often there's a direct alignment of interest between the investors in the fund or the people whose money it is, so mm-hmm. the customers of the, of, the, of, of the fund selectors, the fund selectors themselves and the business because they're all trying to deliver the, re- the right returns. Mm-hmm. So there's a really, uh, a really sharp alignment of interest. And uh, if performance isn't good, and assets go, then the boutiques feel that very keenly. Mm-hmm. Whereas perhaps in a larger company, strategies like that is felt less keenly because the company has mm-hmm. all sorts of other things that, 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 that can that can adopt that, that can take up some of the slack. Uh, and sometimes you get access to uh, interesting strategies which you can't find somewhere else as well. Thank you, Richard. Thank you very much. we have a recording with a prominent multi-asset fund manager. I'm here with Andrew Cole, Senior Investment Manager for Multi-Asset at Pictet Asset Management. Andrew, the potential risks of a Brexit on the UK have been widely discussed, but can you talk me through how you think it could potentially affect Europe? Um, oh, thank you. Um, Look, uh, certainly uh, Brexit has, uh, and its impact on, on UK markets, I think, has been uh, largely discussed and, you know, perhaps or perhaps not discounted. Very difficult to discount an outcome when, you know, in terms of the polls, it, it looks something of, of a coin toss. But certainly sterling has been weak uh, for the best part of a year. 
um, UK equity market underperformed certainly in 2015. Um, you know, was that about Brexit or was that just about the energy and the oil sector that dominates? Um, only time will tell. Um, and you know, perhaps London real estate has sort of cooled a little bit in anticipation that perhaps the flight to quality is coming to an end. So look, yes, I th I'd agree that there has been a, a wide debate and there is some nervousness around uh, UK assets. Um, I think what's less clear is you know, the prospects of what a UK exit and its impact would be on the rest of Europe and the potential consequences of other countries um, either questioning their participation in Europe or, you know, perhaps to some lesser extent, the euro. Um, after all, if the UK were to leave, a pound would still be a pound. It would still be governed by the Bank of England. Um, your property rights uh, and your rule of law would be kind of known and determined. Um, that would be a lot less clear and a lot less transparent um, if you were to get changes within Europe. Um, and I think the market has yet to fully think about those possible consequences. Three months on from the surprise introduction of negative interests in Japan, can you talk me through your positioning in the country? Um, well, we've been uh, 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 optimistic um, about the prospects for Japanese um, companies. Um, that's not a new view, and indeed, it's you know it, we've had uh, a sizable waiting to to Japanese companies for the best part of three years now. Um, the, the reforms under Prime Minister Abe have started to lose momentum. Um, moving to negative interest rates, as in Europe, I think does raise the question of you know, how effective is the banking system um, in, in coping with that. I mean, immediately you're making the banks less profitable which means that they're inclined to do less lending. They do more about shoring up their balance sheet, which isn't the impact that you were trying to have. Um, so it's been slightly disappointing that the Bank of Japan has gone down that route. We wouldn't, at this, case, at this point in time, expect more. Um, we would expect more in terms of fiscal stimulus, perhaps, as being a more effective way of getting the economy um, re-kick-started or you know, giving a further sort of adrenaline push. Um, that said, you know, the corporate sector continues to think about improvements to ROE. 2015, you did get positive earnings surprise in Japan, and we think that there's no reason why that shouldn't continue in 2016. We think the exchange rate will be more stable. The risks are that the yen appreciates, and we, we sort of dampen the volatility in our Japanese equity position by having it unhedged today. So we have an increasing exposure to the yen. Um, We'd like to see uh, a bit more of a policy response from government. We think we'll get it in time. Um, but yes, for the time being, we're, we're happy to sit with you know, Japanese exposure. But it's much more a bottom-up, owning the right companies that are doing the right thing, rather than making a big call about the direction of the yen and the prospects for Japanese exports. Now it's time for our news segment, 
where we discuss some of the stories which have been making headlines lately and what they might mean for investors. I'm joined by Investment Week's Asset Managing Correspondent, Jay Narana, to discuss this month's top stories. Hi, Laura. So, at the start of the month, the top performing manager duo, George Godbert and Georgina Hamilton, handed in their notices of resignation to Mighton, and it was later revealed they'd be moving together to boutique manager Polar Capital. They've been managing Mighton's UK Value Opportunities Fund since its launch in 2013, and its top decile over both one and three years, according to Morningstar. In just three years, the fund has gained nearly £900 million in assets, prompting the firm to announce a capacity limit of £1.2 billion. The assets have really helped boost the fund's fortunes. So what does, so what does their departure mean for Myson? Well, the managers were a great asset to the group, so I'm sure it comes as a huge blow for it. Myson said in a statement its focus continues to be on looking after the best interests of its clients as it recruits replacement portfolio managers but the pair have quite a specific approach to fund management, so it could be difficult to find someone with similar experience. On the day of the announcement, shares in Myton were around 34 pence per share, but today they're down 26 pence per share, a decline of 23%. But Darius McDermott, MD at Chelsea Financial Services, said because of the lengthy notice periods, there's no need for investors to rush and sell their holdings. Godburn Hamilton will only leave earlier if Myton find replacement sooner. So what's in store for Polar Capital? They'll no doubt carry on doing what they do best. The group said they look forward to welcoming the highly rated UK value team. So we might expect to see a new UK equity fund or funds when they move over. As for Polar Capital itself, it recently announced this was the start of a recruitment spree. In its most recent unaudited quarterly update, the firm said it was planning to expand its teams from around 10 to 12 to 12 to 15, which is the first major revision in about 15 years. There was no indication on which asset class or area it will be recruiting in, so I guess we'll just have to watch this space. What other stories have made headlines this month? It's been quite a tough few weeks for Standard Life Investments. In what's been a turbulent first quarter for many managers, we saw that its £26 billion Global Absolute Return Strategies Fund, also known as GARS, was down 3.5% in the three months to 30th of March, its worst quarter since Q3 2008. That was back when Lehman's collapsed. So there's that, but also a report by fundraising service Fundhouse revealed only 15 out of 130 strategies used since inception have contributed to the bulk of returns. So why has it performed so badly recently? It's a mixture of the ongoing volatility in global risk markets and unfortunately poor decisions. And then there's the weakness in European and Japanese equities, which has meant strategies in those areas also detracted from performance. The multi-asset team, which is led by Guy Stern, said the past year has been challenging for many investors, particularly those holding risk assets like equities, but they've been really unlucky. Their US equity tech versus small cap position underperformed after the sectors behaved exactly the way they didn't want them to. Like the team said, it's been tough going for lots of investors, and Fundhouse said it's not singling GARs out. It said high proportion of funds are rated negatively, but perhaps due to its size as the largest fund in the Investment Association universe, clients are asking a lot about GARs more than others, so that's why it's produced the report. Was there anything else mentioned in the report? Fundhouse said it had expected the portfolio to provide a diversified source of return across all asset classes, so it could meet its goals regardless of whether equities or bonds were in favour, but it actually found only 15 of the fund's trades were adding over 3% to its returns, which made up the bulk of its outperformance since inception in 2008. It shows major payoffs were concentrated. And around two-thirds of the strategies delivered between minus 1% and 1% since launch, but Rory Maguire, co-founder and MD at Fundhouse, said they net off to zero in the end, 
again, it's just a case of waiting to see what happens next. Thanks for that, Jaina. That's all we have time for today, but we'd love to hear your comments and ideas for any future podcasts. You can contact me via email on laura.ju at incisivemedia.com. Thank you for listening.